don't know what it is, but there's something refreshing about the end of an election campaign. Maybe I do know what it is. No matter how you feel about the results of this past Monday's federal election, there is still that collective sigh of relief that comes from a nation when the bickering and the bantering and the jockeying for position comes to its, albeit, temporary end. The evening of the election, I was watching the CBC coverage, and Rosie Barton referred to the country as being at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights of the campaign. And I couldn't help but laugh, because there truly is something Lenten and penitential about an election campaign. I'm not sure if it's us or the politicians doing the penance, but someone is. Either way, our conversation now turns to how a minority government will find ways to work with other parties to keep the country running. Likewise, the United States awaits that collective sigh of relief as voices in the Democratic Party continue to volley back and forth, outshouting each other in the campaign to be the next Democratic presidential nominee. But that's okay, because when it's done, one of them will rise to the top, and then they'll all be friends again, remembering that the other party is really the enemy. In the light of all this electioneering comes our gospel text, a parable that centers on one person saying about another, thank God I'm not like that guy. It struck me this week, in a way that maybe it never has before, that this parable has become the very model of politics. What's going on in this parable has become the model of politics, which seemingly governs every aspect of our civic lives. And most of the time, it comes out in anti-type. If you're a Simpsons fan, it would be don't do what Donnie don't does. That's this parable. Don't vote for him. He's a tax collector and a thief. Vote for me. I'm righteous. Look at those people. They're elitists. Or sometimes it's look at those people. They're xenophobes. Watch out for them. Their agenda is going to ruin our country and steal your puppy. Increasingly, we live in a climate where it's increasingly perfectly acceptable to vilify the people we don't like, to attack both the ideas and the people. It's normal to call not just for the resignation, but for the imprisonment of politicians whose policies we disagree with. We've internalized, we've rationalized everything that's going on in this parable, and we've ingrained it into the political process. The very thing that Jesus cautions us against in this parable is exactly what we have normalized into our daily life. And so it's perfectly normal that disagreement, it becomes dissent, and dissent becomes treason. And so the only way, the only way out of this is that this creepy kind of fierce loyalty to homogeneity is the only thing that's acceptable. You have to agree with the whole and not just some of the parts, or your loyalty is incomplete. And it always seems to begin with the mentality of, thank God I'm not like them. The problem is that thank God I'm not like them very quickly turns into, they should be more like me. And that has been, and continues to be, the beginning of far too many tragedies in this world, in our own country, as we've tried time and time again to remake the world in our own image. Day after day, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission 
for residential schools makes us more and more aware of the deep hurt done to the indigenous peoples in, a, in more than a century of abusive government and church policy that sought to colonize and civilize anything that wasn't British Anglo-Saxon. Quebec continues to work toward that kind of featureless homogeneity with Provincial Bill 61, the effort to sanitize the public service of any religious symbolism and that will only inevitably result in a deprived secular identity with absolutely no cultural distinctiveness. Time and time again, in past and in present, we see that cycle of colonialism and assimilation. There's a process for it. You can look through history and see that process. Step one, identify the difference. Identify what is different between them and us. Step two, try to solve it, or shame it, or eliminate it. Step three, if all else fails, legislate against it. And it all begins with, thank God I'm not like them. Fortunately, creepy homogeneity is not what Jesus had in mind when he was preaching this parable we heard this morning to a crowd of people who were over-exalted over and under-humbled. Jesus begins, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Jesus loves his allegory, and Jesus loves his stereotypes. I've said it before that he plays into those stereotypes that we already know and imagine and already know what they mean. And so to the minds hearing this parable the first time and the minds hearing it today in this cathedral, we're already spinning when we hear those words, Pharisee and tax collector. Yes, the Pharisees, I know about them, and those tax collectors, I know about them too. And with that introduction, the scene is set for the cycle to begin. Step one, identify the difference between them and us. The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Step two, shame it. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Step three, try to legislate it. And that's basically all taken care of before the story even begins because the tax collector was considered no better than a traitor against the community. So all bets are off. Now, every commentary you'll read on this passage and every guide to preaching you'll read says, don't vilify the Pharisee. And don't make a hero out of the tax collector. He is, after all, a tax collector, one of the Jewish people who are part of the oppression of the Jewish people. And the Pharisee, though certainly confident in himself, was living out of what he understood to be a true expression of his faith. So don't vilify the Pharisee and don't make a hero out of the tax collector. But the other danger with this gospel is that we use it to reinforce the okayness of everyone and everything. We try to find that level of mediocrity. Well, where maybe the Pharisee isn't so bad, and, and maybe, maybe the tax collector isn't so bad. But that's another kind of homogeneity. That's another kind of just middling something or another. And it robs both of them and us 
of any chance of being transformed by the gospel because we're all okay already. So with that, we're left with these questions about reconciliation. How do we reconcile this gospel text with our own lives? How do we envision a world where the Pharisee and the tax collector, whether it's the one in this parable or whoever we see in our lives playing that role of being different, whoever has that role of difference in our life, how do we envision a world where they're reconciled to each other? And how does this parable lead us forward in our faith? How does this world, how does this parable help us to understand a world and be reconciled to a world that is not meant to be remade in our own image? How do we become people who embrace difference without wanting to change it? Well, when Jesus uses the parables to teach, there's usually one word, one or two words in the story that everything hinges on. It's that one word that unlocks the mystery. Sometimes it's hidden, even to the disciples, but this time it's in plain sight. Listen to the setup and the punchline for this parable. Then Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. And a little later, Jesus says, I tell you, the tax collector went home justified rather than the other. The tax collector went home justified rather than the other. Jesus cuts right to the heart of, thank God I'm not like them, and the way we try to curry favor with God and prop ourselves up. Jesus reminds us that our manipulations and our machinations to earn God's favor are folly. Sirach, in our first reading, says, Do not offer God a bribe, for he will not accept it, and do not rely on a dishonest sacrifice, for the Lord is the judge, and with him there is no partiality. Jesus puts right on center stage the ways we constantly try to justify ourselves, where we spend more time working on justifying ourselves rather than reconciling with others. And as life has so often proved historically, politically, economically, and culturally, justifying ourselves comes only at the expense of others. So how do we begin that work of reconciliation? We do it by undoing that cycle that begins with, thank God I'm not like them. We do it by avoiding both the dangers of this gospel text, the one that vilifies the difference between the two, and the one that tries to homogenize the difference between the two. But that doesn't mean that we eliminate the difference. In fact, we still have to identify the difference and name the difference. But it's what we do with it that matters most. As the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has reminded us time and time again, we do it by hearing the stories, hearing the stories of difference. And that's something that's at the heart of many of the 94 calls to action. With another election cycle gone by, we look at the map of this country now painted orange and red and blue and green, and we ask, is this really how we see ourselves? Is this really how we see the difference between each other and our neighbors and our friends and strangers alike? Or does God call us to something greater? Like our gospel reading today reminds us, 
We do it by acknowledging those times that we've fallen into the trap of privileging ourselves and justifying our own difference, of thinking ourselves better than others instead of understanding the difference between each other. And then with that done, with just naming and understanding and hearing the story of difference, we learn to live into that difference, to live into that ambiguity of knowing that we are each beloved of God, not in spite of, but because of our differences. God is the judge in whom there is no partiality, Sirach says. At the Gender and Sexuality Education series the cathedral held in the spring, Cormac Culkeen, a transgender Anglican layperson, spoke of their experience of trying to find a place in the church as they came to understand their own identity, while the church also works to find its way through changing understandings of gender and sexuality. And the language Cormac used struck me powerfully. They said, I'll make room for your difference if you'll make room for my difference. I'll make room for your difference if you make room for my difference. And that's the next part of undoing that cycle of homogeneity and assimilation, learning not to judge the difference, but to witness to the difference, to make room for the difference. As members of Christ's church, how will we make room for the difference that each of us, even in this place right now, represents? So that both the Pharisee and the tax collector, whoever we understand that to be, both have a place. As citizens of a country now seemingly divided by east and west, according to that colorful map, divided by liberal and conservative, by rich and poor, how will we turn each other's difference into something that unites us rather than drives the wedge between us? In a world that we have so clearly ordered for some to thrive and for others to struggle, how will we find it within ourselves to stand back, to let God reorder the world so that both the exalted and the humbled can be transformed? I don't have the answer to these questions. I just know that it doesn't begin with, thank God I'm not like that person. Today's gospel texts remind us that it's God in whom there is no partiality that we are justified and not through ourselves. That work of justification has already been done for us in Jesus Christ. So what's left for us to do? Just to hear one another's stories stories of difference and stories of struggle. Let's live into those stories and own the difference that is at the heart of God's creation. In a world that we've reordered to divide and conquer, let us make our unity and difference in diversity our strength in Christ. In the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.